There's a handout on the music stand. Make sure you get one of those for this morning. But we're not going to be starting with our next book. We still have some leftovers from last week to begin with today. And so if you brought your notes from last week, it's good to grab those and bring them. And you should have a folder where you're keeping all of your notes for the Old Testament survey. And this is very valuable material, very helpful. And we want to make the the most of the opportunities that God gives us to learn his word, especially parts of the Bible that we don't normally spend as much time in. We really want to be able to get our arms around the narrative, the big story, of the Old Testament Hebrew Scriptures. We left off last week in our study of Joshua. And in the book of Joshua, there is a very difficult ethical conundrum in Joshua chapter 2, where we have Rahab hiding the spies from the leaders of Jericho. And in doing what is good protecting and hiding the spies, she appears to tell an outright lie. And so the question is, is that a justified lie or is it an unjustified lie? And so that's what we want to begin with here today. And we'll see how long we spend on this very interesting issue that is not focused on in the text. That the text just goes right over it, and nowhere in the Bible do we have a treatment of this question, but the text does raise the question, and there are other similar narrative passages in the Bible that also raise this question of, is it ever right to tell a lie? Is it ever right to deceive through words or through actions? And there's been whole chapters written on this in ethics books. It's one of the most thorny ethical issues that Christians deal with. And so I consulted several different ethics textbooks on this and reading in the commentaries and the study Bibles and getting lots of different takes. It's, it's very fascinating. So I enjoy this type of discussion and debate. And I think God puts things like this in the Bible in order to get us thinking. He doesn't just tell us the answer to everything. He makes us work for some things. And It's uh, very wise how God has done so. So, Joshua chapter 2 in your Bibles, you see that Joshua sent the two men secretly into Jericho to view the land, especially the city. And they came and they stayed in the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab. And people wonder, why are they staying in the house of a prostitute? Well, Probably not because they were looking for her professional services, but instead because it would be normal for travelers to stay at a place like this. And so they're trying to be covert. They're trying to blend in and not look like spies. And so they go to the house of this prostitute and stay there. And the king of Jericho finds out. Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight. This would make a a great movie or episode in a Bible series where you've got all this intrigue and you kind of play out how is it that the people of the city discovered that they were spies and then they go and tell the king and make for great drama. And the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, so he doesn't come personally, but he sends some of his officials and, and soldiers and says, bring out the men who have come to you who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman who had taken the two men and hidden them, and she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. 
But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. And then you can read the rest of the chapter and find out the rest of Rahab's story. But in the rest of the chapter, in the rest of the story, it doesn't comment on whether her lie was the right thing to do or whether it was the wrong thing to do. However, we do have passages in the scriptures that commend Rahab for sending out the spies in safety. Now, whether the way that she did it was right, she is commended for her faith, and she is the lone survivor from the city of Jericho, a city that is under the ban, because she took the side of the Israelites. She is then, therefore, a part of Israel and brought into the nation after the conquest of Jericho. A very interesting person. Rahab shows up in the New Testament in the genealogy of Jesus Christ, one of just a few women who are mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And so rather remarkable that this non-Israelite woman would be in the line of Christ. And so not only does she become a part of Israel, but she also becomes a part of God's salvation history in the genealogy of our Lord. Remember, as we're looking through the book of Joshua, this is the first book in the Nevi'im. And the Nevi'im are the prophets in the Hebrew canon. So the Hebrew canon is the Tanakh, the Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Ketuvim. That is the law, Torah, the prophets, Nevi'im, and the writings, the Ketuvim, also sometimes just called by its first and biggest book, the book of Psalms. The law, the prophets, and the Psalms is how the New Testament often summarizes the Old Testament canon. But I just wanted to remind you that as I was moving from my slide to the next one here, where you've got Rahab being commended in the New Testament for her faith in the great hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. So Hebrews 11.31 mentions that by faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient. And I, I think it's important here that the scripture points out that she was a prostitute. And so this is not somebody who's justified by works. This is somebody who's justified by faith. And God's grace in rescuing someone who was not an Israelite and who was a sinful woman, and yet because she turned to the Lord, the God of Israel, in faith, she was saved and is commended for that. So she didn't perish with those who were disobedient, the rest of the Canaanites, the rest of Jericho, because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Notice it doesn't say because she told a lie. It says because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Now, part of that friendly welcome is that she covered up for them and hid them and told the soldiers that they'd already left. Was that the right way to give them a friendly welcome? That's the question. Does Hebrews chapter 11, verse 31 justify her lie? Most people would say no. It stops short of justifying her lie. It's just justifying her faith and commending her friendly welcome, not the lie that she told. James chapter 2, verse 25 is the other place in the New Testament where Rahab's faith is commended. And you see very similarly. However, here the emphasis is on the good work that came from her faith because James' emphasis on faith and works is to show that faith that doesn't work is not saving faith, but that faith will produce works of faith, works of action, and that that demonstrates that faith is genuine. So in James 2.25, in the same way also, was not Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? So once again, it doesn't mention anything about her lie. 
It just says she received them and sent them out by another way. But the way that she sent them out by another way was that she told a lie. And normally we as Christians think that telling lies is pretty bad. I mean, it is one of the Ten Commandments. Which number commandment is it that you shall not lie? That's right. Yeah, nine. So when the kids are doing the do not lie, they do the hold up nine fingers and do not lie. Now, I actually want you to look at the ninth commandment with me. Go back to Exodus chapter 20 where we have the Ten Commandments. So Exodus chapter 20, notice what it says in verse 16. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Now, we summarize that as do not lie. But it doesn't actually say do not lie. It says you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And so if you want to be really specific about the ninth commandment, the ninth commandment is saying that you're not supposed to lie against your neighbor in a court of law, that you're supposed to tell the truth when you're testifying about a dispute, even if you're not in court, I think it would apply, that you don't hurt people by telling what is false and in order to advantage yourself. That's really the heart of the ninth commandment in its context. And so perhaps you could say that while lying to hurt others and help yourself is wrong, there are certain situations where telling something that's not true in order to protect others and to fear God is the right thing to do. And, and there are some people who take that position, that Rahab was right in telling the lie. Not that it's the only right thing that she could have done in this situation, but that the scripture records it without condemnation and that these commendations of Rahab receiving the spies and sending them out implicitly justify her deception. And one of those who hold to this position is John Frame. John Frame is a reformed theologian who wrote the Doctrine of the Christian Life. It's an ethics book that deals with all of the ethical issues in the scriptures. And he says that deceit is a part of the ethics of war. That when you are at war with someone, it's allowable to deceive your enemy. And this is a, an interesting position, one that has debated and discussed. And you can think of many examples of how when you're at war, you might deceive the enemy. If you're a spy and you're behind enemy lines and you're pretending to be a, a German soldier, you might be telling some lies in order to protect your cover and to be able to get the information. But perhaps a Christian might say, well, I can't be a spy because I can't tell lies. And so you're going to have to get a non-Christian to be your spy. And so this is a, a matter of the conscience of the individual. Do you think it would be right to tell lies if you were a spy and going behind enemy lines? Or do you think it would be wrong for you to do that? And you need to follow your conscience on that. That's one thing the scripture is very clear on, is that each of us needs to follow our conscience on these difficult ethical issues where Christians are going to disagree. And the scripture is not exactly clear on the issue. God could have given us a verse in the Old Testament law, very easily, where he would say, Israel, it's okay to deceive your enemies in war. But he never did. There's no verse that says that in the Bible. And so, maybe it's okay to deceive in war. Maybe it's not okay. And different people will argue that for different reasons. Come with me to Joshua chapter 8. 
Here is the other battle that is here in these early chapters, another city that is under the ban like Jericho. This one is Ai. Remember, there's just a few cities that Israel destroyed, Jericho, Ai, I think there's one more. But by and large, the cities were not destroyed. The battles took place outside of the cities, and then the people of Israel just took the cities for themselves without destroying them. Well, in the fall of Ai, we find that there is a ruse, there is a deceit that Israel engages in in order to draw the army out from the city so that they can conquer Ai. Let's pick it up there in verse 18. The Lord said to Joshua, Stretch out the javelin that is in your hand toward Ai, for I will give it into your hand. And Joshua stretched out the javelin that was in his hand toward the city. And the men in the ambush rose quickly out of their place. And as soon as he had stretched out his hand, they ran and entered the city and captured it, and they hurried to set the city on fire. So when the men of Ai looked back, behold, the smoke of the city went up to heaven, and they had no power to flee this way or that, for the people who fled to the wilderness turned back against the pursuers. And when Joshua and all Israel saw that the ambush had captured the city and that the smoke of the city went up, then they turned back and struck down the men of Ai. And the others came out from the city against them, so they were in the midst of Israel, some on this side and some on that side. And Israel struck them down until there was left none that escaped or survived, but the king of Ai they took alive and brought him near to Joshua. Now, actually, I started too late. Let's back up and see the instructions here and how they set this ambush. And so you go back to verse 3, actually. So Joshua and all the fighting men arose to go up to Ai. And this is after they'd already suffered a defeat at Ai because of Achan's sin, if you remember in the previous chapters. And so he commanded them, Behold, you shall lie in ambush against the city behind it. Do not go very far from the city, but all of you remain ready. And I and the people who are with me will approach the city. And when they come out against us, just as before, we shall flee before them. And they will come out after us until we have drawn them away from the city. For they will say, they are fleeing from us just as before. So we will flee before them. Then you shall rise up from the ambush and seize the city. For the Lord your God will give it into your hand. And then it goes on for the rest of the battle. And so that's exactly what they did. So when they pretend to retreat, they're pretending that they're losing the battle like they did in the previous occasion. And then the pursuers come out to see how many they can kill before they get away. And so this is a deceit. It is pretending that you are losing and defeated and running away. And it's all part of the deception to get the army out where then you can capture the city, burn it, and then get the army in that pincer movement and trap them between you. So this kind of deception in war is not wrong. There's no indication that this was a bad plan or it was not from the Lord or it was wrong for Israel to do this. However, Wayne Grudem also has an excellent book on ethics and I read his chapter on telling the truth and lying and in particular Rahab's lie. And Grudem makes the point that there is a difference between saying a lie and acting in a deceptive manner. Grudem says it's okay to act in a deceptive manner in certain situations, but it's never okay to tell a lie. And so he'd say Joshua chapter 8 is fine. They're acting in a way that could be interpreted one way, and of course that's how it was interpreted, and it ended up deceiving them. But actions are ambiguous. But when it comes to a propositional statement, the men left, hurry and you can catch them, the statement is either true or false. 
Actions are interpreted, but statements are either true or false. And so Grudem makes that distinction between deceptive actions and lying words. I think that's an important thing to keep in mind when you're trying to process something like this, a a difficult issue. You don't want to just jump to a conclusion. And you don't just want to say, well, this is what I've thought before, and so I'm just going to stick with that. But you've got to be reasonable. You've got to be open to arguments. You've got to look at it from all sides. That's part of being a wise person. And God wants us to be wise. He wants us to grow and increase in wisdom. And, And the godly man and woman is reasonable not somebody who is closed-minded, but someone who's open to persuasion with truth. Now, I've always had the position that Rahab's lie is justified, that it was not wrong for her to do so. However, that is a minority position, and that's part of my personality, that's part of my bias. I like minority positions. And so, You have to decide for yourself what you think is the right thing to do in a situation like this. And there's more than one right thing to do at times. There might have been something better that she could have done than to tell the lie. However, this is what she did, and that's what the Scripture records. And it's important for us when we're reading the Bible to make a distinction between what the Scripture records and what the Scripture commends or condemns. And there's lots of things the Scripture records, and it's not exactly clear whether the Scripture is saying this is what you should do or this is what you shouldn't do. It just says this is what happened. And there's a lot of that in the Bible. One great example I was thinking about this week was the disagreement between Saul and Barnabas as to whether or not John Mark should go with them on their second missionary journey. And Luke records that there was such a big disagreement between Paul and Barnabas on whether or not John Mark was reliable that they ended up splitting and going in two different directions. And Luke doesn't say who was right. And the Holy Spirit doesn't give any indication in the text whether you should side with Paul on that or whether you should side with Barnabas. It just says it happened. And so there's things like that where the Scripture is not making a judgment call. It's just recording what happened. And that might be what we have here. But it makes for interesting discussion, and I think that's part of why God puts it in the text, is to get us thinking on these issues. Now, when you're talking about the ethics of war, and whether or not deceit is a part of the ethics of war, there's another key passage that is really helpful in this regard, and this is the one that tips me towards my position, and always has been a big influence on me, is Exodus chapter 1, verses 15 through 21. Exodus 1, 15 through 21. Now, I will admit that there's not much evidence to tip necessarily one way or the other. It's pretty ambiguous in Rahab's lie in Joshua chapter 2 whether or not there's ever a time where it's okay to speak an untruth. But I think Exodus chapter 1 is actually more clear that there is a time where it's okay to speak an untruth. And that's what the case of the Hebrew midwives lying to Pharaoh about the Israelite women who were having babies, who were supposed to be put to death according to Pharaoh's command, and the Hebrew midwives would not carry out that command, and they end up telling a lie to Pharaoh to try to save and protect the lives of these babies. So, let's read that. It starts in Exodus chapter 1, verse 15. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom's name was Shipra and the other Pua. Now the fact that the Holy Spirit records their names seems to be that the Holy Spirit is honoring them. Their names are recorded, it seems to me, as a mark of honor that these women did the right thing. 
Okay? And so it says in verse 16, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it's a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God. Okay, so there's the Holy Spirit commentary that the midwives feared God. Now, Rahab also feared God. She's commended for her faith. So let's continue looking at this situation. The midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives. There's a a commendation, and it's right after their lie. Right after their lie, God says, And so they got favor uh, from, from the Lord. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. So this passage is also somewhat ambiguous. You could make an argument, people do, that perhaps it's not a lie. Maybe the Hebrew women were more rigorous than the Egyptian women. Maybe it's kind of a half-truth that's mingled in here. I don't really read it that way. I think that's kind of stretching and and trying to make the passage support your position. I think if you just take the passage in its context, according to the tone and everything that is here, it really seems like God is commending their lie. Now, maybe you don't want to believe that because you think, well, telling a lie is always bad, so it can't mean that. I don't know. This passage makes me think that there are certain places, certain situations, where God says it's okay to deceive. And I think you know, that ethics of war applies in a situation like this because the Egyptians are oppressing the Hebrews. Although it's not an active war, they're basically a subjugated people at the point of spears. And so they are hostile forces that are involved here, and it's a life-and-death situation. And their lie, I think, is not so much to protect themselves. I think their lie is to try to protect the children. And I think that is one of the keys here. Of course, the classic situation that is always brought up in discussions like this is what happened in the 20th century when the Jews were put under the ban by the Nazis, and the Nazis wanted to eliminate all the Jews. And so God-fearing people would hide the Jews from the Nazis and they would go door to door and they would search people's houses and they would interrogate people and are there any Jews here? And is it okay in that situation to tell the Nazis, no, there's no Jews here? Or is that wrong? Is it wrong to lie? And and instead you should find some other way to try to trust in God and protect the lives of these Jewish people. So, Different people have different opinions on that as well. I tend to think it would be okay to say, nope, no Jews here. Now, that position is dangerous. I understand why not everybody likes that position because Grudem does a great job of warning about how that position can lead into a slide of moral relativism. And that if it's okay to lie in this situation, well, then maybe it's okay to lie in this situation. And we just kind of keep on justifying lying because a greater good comes out of it. And that is a very dangerous slide that we must be careful not to enter into. For example, when Abraham went down to sojourn in Egypt, remember in Genesis chapter 20, and 
the ruler down there, the Pharaoh, saw that Sarah was a beautiful woman and wanted to bring her into his harem. And so Abraham told a half-truth. He told a, a lie that she's my sister because they were actually related. So he told the lie, and that was not a commendable lie. We can see from Scripture that that was the wrong thing for Abraham to do. Now, Abraham could try to justify it. He could say, well, it was a life-or-death situation, you know, and, and I didn't want to die, so it's justified to tell a lie. And, and he, you know, was a violent enemy, and I was a foreigner, and, and blah, blah, blah. So you could try to say, well, part of the ethics of war, so to speak, is that I had to lie to save my life. No, that doesn't work in that situation. So you have to be careful that you don't, take this slippery slope down and start justifying lies that shouldn't be justified, that are really designed just to not have faith in God or to protect myself because I don't have faith in God. So very important here that we don't do that. Now, another key verse here that I want to throw out in the discussion is Hebrews chapter 6, verse 18. Hebrews 6, 18 says, It is impossible for God to lie. It is impossible for God to lie. And we want to be like God, don't we? We want to be godly. We want to be as much like him as possible. And so we should never lie. And I can understand why Wayne Groom takes that position. And it is probably the safer position. However, I'm not motivated by safety as much as I'm motivated by just being true to the text. And when I look at the text, I just can't escape the conclusion it was right in this situation for them to do so. Another interesting passage, we're having fun, right? You guys don't mind if we continue on some of this. 1 Samuel chapter 21. 1 Samuel chapter 21. We want to avoid moral relativism, but we also want to avoid a moral simplicity that doesn't account for how situations are complex. We don't want to be moral relativists, but we also don't want to oversimplify moral issues. We want to be discerning and astute. And here in 1 Samuel chapter 21, you've got an interesting account. Once again, all of these are narrative passages. None of them are didactic teaching on speaking the truth and lying. God's not giving us a chapter here on, well, here's what a lie is, and here's what you're not supposed to do, and here's how you're supposed to speak the truth, and laying out principles. Instead, God gives us stories. And some of those stories seem to have more insight into ethics, and some of them are more ambiguous and just interesting the way God has done this. So you come to 1 Samuel 21, verse 13. And David is fleeing from Saul, who wants to kill him. And as David flees, he goes to the king of Gath, whose name is Achish. And as he goes among the Philistines here, he has to flee his own borders because Saul's reach is all throughout Israel and he has to, to actually leave the country in order to be safe. That the servants of Achish, in verse 11, told him, uh, David's here. David has been anointed to be the king of Israel. And, you know, they have this song in Israel about how Saul has struck down his thousands and David his tens thousands. If David's here, you know, good opportunity to kill the next king of Israel. And so David took these words to heart <laughs> and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So what did he do? Verse 13. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the door of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see, the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? So they thought they might capture him and hold him for ransom or something. I don't know. 
then David pretends to be crazy, and they're like, send this guy away. We don't want anything to do with this guy. So again, this is an action, but it is a deceptive action. And so in essence, it's lying. But it seems to have been the right thing to do in this situation, although it doesn't explicitly say so in the text. Most of David's actions are, are pretty commendable. And so just another interesting illustration of deception in a life and death situation with an enemy. Now, this becomes a very important ethical discussion when looking at modern day life because if you're dealing with a Muslim, Muslims have been taught that it's okay to lie to your enemies. That in war, and they're in this jihad, this holy war for Allah to spread Islam throughout the whole world and to take control of the whole world, that it's okay to lie and deceive your enemies because it's like an act of war. And so it's very hard to know when you can trust a Muslim and when you cannot trust a Muslim in what they say and what they don't say. And that doesn't seem like a very good thing. It doesn't seem like a good representation of a, a godly people that you never know if you can trust what they're saying or not. And so I bring that up as an argument in favor of the never lie position and that it's not okay to deceive in war because you can look at what certain groups can do with that teaching and what the results of that teaching are. So a lot to think about, a lot to process, a lot of different ways of looking at it. And so we want to be careful, we want to be wise, and pray for wisdom. Ask God to lead us into all the truth. And God will give you wisdom in every situation to know what is the right thing to do. God is with you, you're not alone. And so you don't have to necessarily have all the answers written down in a book somewhere where you, you say, well, I'm going to do whatever Wayne Grudem told me to do. You can do whatever the Holy Spirit tells you to do because you know God and God is with you. And, and when you're in the situation, you just stop and pray like Nehemiah did when he was before the king. And God will be with you. He'll give you the words. He'll give you the wisdom in the moment to do the right thing in your conscience, in your heart, because God is with you. And I believe that. Uh, so that's a good bottom line place to end. All right, so the other interpretive issue in the book of Joshua that we didn't have time to look at last week, we'll just look at briefly here, is in Joshua chapter 10, verses 12 through 14. So go back to Joshua 10. Perhaps one of the most amazing and outstanding miracles in the Bible, my brother is a uh, student ministries teacher and leader at his church in North Carolina. And so this was one of the passages I think that he taught among the third to fifth graders that they have in their class, their big Sunday school class out there. And Tyler was very curious as to what my position was on what actually happened. How did God do this miracle? And so let's take a look at it. Joshua 10, starting in verse 12. At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, Sun, stand still at Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Aijalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped, until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jashar? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There's been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. And so the question here is, how does this work? Because we know that the sun doesn't actually move across the sky and the moon doesn't actually move across the sky, but that the earth is rotating and that makes it look like the sun is moving across the sky and, and the moon is going around the earth. And so it's not just a matter of God stopping the sun and the moon in the sky, but it's a matter of either the earth stopping its rotation 
Or it's a matter of some other miracle making it look like the sun and the moon have not moved. And so that's the question here. What exactly happened? How do we explain this miracle? Because the unbeliever will look at this and say, well, here's a clear example of myth in the Bible. We know that it's physically impossible that the repercussions of the earth not spinning would be you know, disastrous for the whole planet and that everything would tear apart and you'd have gravity problems or whatever. I'm not a physicist. And so they say this is obviously myth. Obviously it didn't actually happen. And so we, as believers in the Bible, we have to say, well, how do we think it actually could have happened? And so those who take the text at face value, I think the plainest way to understand the text is not that the sun appeared to stand still or that the moon appeared to stand still, but that it actually did. And that, therefore, what God must have done is that he actually did stop the rotation of the earth for a time. And that whatever horrible consequences would normally come about from stopping the earth's rotation, God in his infinite power stopped those consequences from happening and held the earth together or whatever needs to be done for the physics of this all to work out, that that's not something that's too hard for God. And so that's one way of interpreting this miracle. Another way of interpreting the miracle is to say that God made the moon and sun appear to stand still while the earth actually continued rotating. So it's some kind of an illusion, some kind of mirage that God created to continue the light of the day on the earth so that Israel could continue this battle and God would answer Joshua's prayer for the chance to extend the battle beyond sunset. Whichever one you take I think is fine. There's good men who take either position, and I, I don't think either one has a problem theologically. I think if you want to be as close to the text as possible, you probably prefer to say that God made the earth stand still. But if that's too hard for you to believe because of physics, then I don't think there's anything wrong with saying that God just made it appear that the sun and the moon were still standing still in the sky. I don't see a problem with that. So just wanted to bring that out as something to be aware of. If you're reading angry atheist arguments against the Bible, you'll come across something like that, and now you've thought about it, and you've got a response that you can give. So that is the book of Joshua. Let's do a quick review of some of the questions that I've given you on the book of Joshua, and then we'll just get started on the book of Judges in the last five minutes that we have. So the first question that I had on your handout last week was, what is the purpose of the book of Joshua? Now, without looking, anybody remember or can anybody come close to telling me what is the purpose of the book of Joshua as we taught it last week? Think about the flow of the history coming right after the Pentateuch, Deuteronomy. What is the big idea? What's the purpose of Joshua? Yes, right. So it's all about the land and Joshua is the book of the land. And, and so it kind of completes the Pentateuch, remember? that the Pentateuch has this big story of the birth of a nation and how God created this nation according to his promises to Abraham. And a big part of that promise was that your people will inherit this land. And so Moses dies and the people aren't in the land. They've got a little bit of it, but not the most of it. And so it's a completion of the story of God creating the nation by giving them the land. Now, there's a twofold aspect of the purpose. There's that God gives them the land, but there's also the aspect that they only control as much of the land as they are faithful to take. And so Israel has been given it, 
but they still have to take it, they still have to receive it, and that there's some left that they haven't taken. So a, a big part of the purpose of Joshua is not only to show God's faithfulness in giving them the land, but also their partial obedience, the incompleteness of their obedience, to take all of the land that God has given them. And that's what's going to then lead into Judges and then the rest of the former prophets. The former prophets are Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings. Those are the former prophets, four books. Now we've divided Samuel and Kings up into separate books, but originally they're just one book, very big. So those four books, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings, are the former prophets. And the former prophets teach us that exactly what Deuteronomy said comes true. God gives them the land, but they're unfaithful to God in the land, and therefore they lose the land. That's the story in one, one brief sentence. And the part that Joshua plays in it is them getting the land. That's the purpose of the book. God is faithful to his covenant to give Israel the land, but Israel is only partially faithful to God in receiving what God has given to them. So then, second question I had on your handout last week is, how and why does the book of Joshua show that God is responsible for Israel's military victories? How does the book of Joshua show that God gets the credit, God gets the glory for Israel's military victories? Can you think of any examples? And how does God get the glory for that? Yeah, you know, blowing trumpets and shouting normally doesn't knock down walls. So this is God knocking down the walls. And, and uh, it's hard to take a city. The whole purpose of the walls is to keep you out. And so God knocks down the walls, so he gets the credit for the victory. Can you think of other examples? Yeah. Yeah, so there's a lot of ways, like even like making the sun stand still. There's a lot of things that God does throughout the book to show that he's fighting for Israel and that when he fights for them, they win. But when he does not fight for them, they lose. Like at Ai, when Achan had his sin and the people of Israel lose, well, it's because they disobeyed God and God was not fighting for them. There's consequences. So it's like God is the mighty hero in the battle. And when God's there, they win. When God's not there, they lose. That's the theme, the idea of the book of Joshua. It's kind of like when you're reading through a, a Greek epic like the Trojan War. And when Achilles is out on the battlefield, you know, the Greeks win. But when Achilles goes back to his tent, the Greeks lose. Well, we're dealing with someone much more powerful than Achilles here. And when God is with Israel, they win. When God leaves, they lose. And that's the thing that comes through all these miracles and throughout the book of Joshua. He's the mighty warrior. Now, number three is, why did God order that all of the Canaanites be put to death? What reason is given in the text? What does the book of Joshua say as to why all of the Canaanites are to be put to death? Well, yeah, it's to protect Israel from intermingling with the Canaanites and forming a mixture of the religions. That's true. Yeah, uh, because of their idolatry, because their sin had reached a terminal point. There's this theme in the Bible that God allows sin to go to a certain extent and then it's time for judgment. Sodom and Gomorrah is an example of this. When their sin had reached its fullness, piled up to heaven, so to speak. It was time for the destruction. And so that is the time for judgment had come. And so that was what God was doing in putting all of them to death and also has that benefit then of their sin not contaminating the people of Israel. And then number four, 
Joshua was all of the following except A, an assistant to Moses, B, a general, C, a priest, or D, one of the twelve spies who went into Canaan. Joshua was all of the following except for an assistant to Moses, a general, a priest, or one of the twelve spies who went into Canaan. Which one? Right, C, priest. Another multiple choice question. Number five. Which of the following is not a major theme of the book of Joshua? Covenant and land, God's power and sovereignty, the ban, the need for a king. Not a major theme. Covenant and land, God's power and sovereignty, the ban, or the need for a king. D, the need for a king. That's actually what's coming up in Judges. Judges shows the need for a king. Joshua, that's not a theme in that book. True or false? Possessing the land was central to God's covenant with Israel. Right, that's true. Possessing the land was central to God's covenant with Israel. True or false? During the period of the conquest, there was one central power that controlled Canaan. That's false. There was not one central power. There's individual city-states. There's alliances between those city-states. And so there were several different campaigns to break the power of the people of Canaan. There was not one central capital city. Eight, the last one. True or false? The book of Joshua shows that Yahweh alone deserved the credit for Israel's military victories. That is true. Yeah. I want to make sure we got that clear. All right, so that's the book of Joshua. Hopefully that is helpful to you and you had a chance to read through the book of Joshua as we move into our next book, the book of Judges. Let's do a short introduction to the book of Judges and then you'll have opportunity to be reading it this week if you haven't already finished it. And the book of Judges, you see in Judges chapter 1 verse 1, it starts off with the death of Joshua. Joshua starts with the death of Moses. Judges starts with the death of Joshua. We see this repeated pattern throughout the former prophets that the servants of the Lord die, but the Lord remains. The Lord continues on with the people of Israel. It's the story of the Lord in Israel, not the story of Joshua or Moses or Samuel or David. It's the story of the Lord and Israel. And the the relationship of the Lord and Israel was outlined in the book of Deuteronomy And now it's all playing out exactly how God predicted in Deuteronomy, in the former prophets, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings. Now, after the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who shall go up for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? So, once again, the story is continuing and it's picking up right where Joshua left off because the book of Joshua was all about the conquest of the Canaanites. And how does Judges start? with some more conquest of the Canaanites. And that's chapter 1. But chapter 2 is what I want to focus on here as we introduce the book. And chapter 2 focuses on Israel's disobedience. That's the title for the section here that starts off chapter 2. And really, Judges is a tragedy. You see on your handout, the spiritual tragedy of the book of Judges begins to fulfill the prophecies of Deuteronomy about Israel's unfaithfulness in the land of promise. The Joshua generation, largely faithful. Now we get into Judges, and we've got 300 years of unfaithfulness. The faithful generation was brief and short. The unfaithfulness goes on a long time in the land of promise. And we see this repeated cycle of sin, oppression, and deliverance 
which demonstrates Israel's need for a righteous king. So God gives them the land, they're unfaithful in the land, and they need a righteous king, which is where Samuel and Kings then takes the story. So kingship is really what ties all of the former prophets together. It's a finishing of the promises to Abraham. And now in the Torah, God had already hinted at the fact that he was bringing a king. It was in Balaam's prophecies. It was in, I think, Jacob's blessings of Israel. It shows up in several places that there's going to be a king coming for God's nation, the nation of Israel. But it's not a huge factor in the Abrahamic covenant itself. And so the Abrahamic covenant, the promises that are there in Genesis are largely fulfilled by the time we get to the end of Joshua. But we see that that's not enough. The people are going to need more because they can't live faithful to God under the law. And so the more is that God is going to give them a king. That's what we're going to here. And then we see that the king was not enough either. And that leads us to the end of the former prophets where the kings have failed as well. And so it's the failure of Israel and then it's the failure of their kings. And all of that is part of God's plan to lead us to the king of kings, the Lord of David, and the promises of when God is finally going to bring Israel the blessings in the new covenant and through Jesus Christ, the son of David. You see how all of this is moving in that direction. And that's not me imposing that on the scripture. That's what actually just comes out of the text if you're looking at the themes and the development of what God is doing, the big story of the Bible. So let's look at chapter 2 here about Israel's disobedience. Now the angel of the Lord, not an angel, but the angel of the Lord, a very important person in the Old Testament, starting in the Torah and going through the former prophets, the angel of the Lord, who is the pre-incarnate Christ, spoiler, went up from Gilgal to Bochim, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. You see, he speaks with the voice of God. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to the, all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept, and they called the name of that place Bochim, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. And then we have the details of Joshua's death, and come down to verse 11. And verse 11 says, The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. So there's the summary statement of Israel's unfaithfulness during the 300 years of the book of Judges. They did what was evil, they served the Baals. They abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them. And they bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, 
and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he said, Because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. So that is the summary of the book of Joshua. And when you read the rest of the book, you'll see that's exactly what happens. The people go after other gods, they sin against the Lord, and the Lord gives them into the hands of their enemies. They cry out for help from God. God sends them a judge who delivers them from their enemies. And then for a little while they're faithful, but then their faithfulness melts away and they go right back to worshiping other gods and the whole cycle repeats itself. And this happens for 300 years. Cycle after cycle, you've got 12 judges mentioned, seven who are focused on. In the middle, you've got one of the most important judges, Gideon, four chapters written about Gideon. At the end, you've got an important judge, Samson, four chapters written about Samson. Those are the ones that we tend to know the best, but I encourage you to read the whole book and understand that the people of Israel demonstrate the need for a righteous king because they are not able to be faithful to the Lord without a leader. The judges function as that leader temporarily for a time, but they need a lasting, eternal, ever-living, righteous king. That's the big idea.